the image of the cross. That is love. It is such a profound love because while we were yet sinners, not waiting for us to get it right, not waiting for us to even begin to make progress towards making it right, God made it right through His Son. By sending His Son Jesus to the cross who suffered, who died and rose again, we receive life because of His love. Today I bring you greetings from two different groups of people. First, from Concordia Seminary, where I serve as the Director of Ministerial Recruitment and Admissions. And I also thank you for sending to us Austin Wellhausen and Michael Hansen, two very different young men, but two incredible gifts. We actually think so highly of Austin, we actually asked him to be a part of our staff in the admissions office. He was also the one who worked with me at the National Youth Gathering this July uh, when we were in New Orleans to work with people with disabilities. Thank you for their formation. I also bring you greetings from all the men and women who could really stand here today and also tell their story, their story of September 11th, their story of that part of history that they also lived. Tuesday, September 11th, was a day not unlike this morning. Incredibly beautiful, the first very nice, cooler day in late summer. I had just been to the grocery store, a very normal thing to do on a, on a Tuesday because we had a Bible study every Wednesday night and it was my turn to prepare the meal. We would gather around food and gather around spiritual food and His Word and I was just coming back from the store when I heard the story on the radio. I couldn't imagine what they were talking about because having been in the World Trade Center, having been to the top, having been to Windows on the World, having had my lunch in the plaza, I knew how enormous those buildings were. One acre square. To see that gaping hole in that South Tower I knew it was more than a Cessna, more than a private plane that had somehow gone off course, but was obviously a major airline. I was standing there watching the television, much as many of you may have been doing, when the second plane hit, and then I knew. Then I knew without a doubt that it had to be terrorism. I called up my district president, and when I got to his desk, he said, what are you talking about? He didn't even know what had happened, but I recalled back in 1993 when the two towers were bombed by terrorists that a classmate of mine from Concordia, Ann Arbor, Pastor Wayne Hammett, went from his congregation on 57th Street and 9th Avenue, close to Central Park, close to Lincoln Center. He went down to offer comfort and hope and the love of Jesus to people he didn't know. He didn't know if they would be members of his congregation, but they were people in need of love. So I asked the district president if I should go or if this is a time when we allow the professionals, the, the professional fire department and police department chaplains to take care of things, and he said go. So I got in my car and I really started doing a number of things that in real life didn't seem to make sense. I got on the Long Island Expressway, which locally we would joke about the Long Island Expressway being the world's longest parking lot. 
you never moved. You just, once you got on there, you just kind of waited, and eventually you would get to the Midtown Tunnel. Eventually, sometime before the second coming of Christ, you would actually make it into Manhattan. It was then that I started doing things that were not exactly right, but I did them. I followed emergency vehicles closer than 500 feet. I found that if I followed them, I could make great time. And I sped through the small part of Long Island and into Queens and to Maurice Avenue, just really an exit before you get to the Midtown Tunnel. But by that time, they were diverting all the non-emergency vehicles off the road. I parked my car the wrong way on a one-way street, walked back down to the expressway, and the construction workers there helped flag down the next vehicle, a large black SUV. I opened up the door and got in, and a woman, an FBI agent, gave me a ride into Manhattan. As we were approaching the Midtown Tunnel, you come on this great big rise. It's the part of the expressway that goes over the rail yard below. From there, I could look down to the south and I could see the World Trade Center engulfed in flames. I could see that black, acrid smoke billowing from there. And pretty soon I said, it's gone. It's gone. And she said, what's gone? I said, the South Tower has collapsed. We heard it on her police radio as well as the AM station. She looked at me, and I, I don't remember her name, but she said to me, Father, because when you wear a clerical collar, which most clergy in New York do because that's our uniform, she said, Father, I don't know what it is that I will do today or what you will do today, but we need to get there. In record time, we made it through the tunnel and came down 2nd Avenue, and we parked on Worth Street, which is so close to one police plaza but also extremely close to the area you might have heard in movies as Five Points. It's also the place where True Light Lutheran Church for the Chinese is. We parked there, we bid each other farewell and God bless, and I walked over to Church and Chamber Street, four blocks from the World Trade Center. As I stood there, I could look over to my right and still see the North Tower, mostly covered in smoke. Not knowing what to do was not an issue because as soon as I got there, people started coming up to me asking to be blessed, asking for prayers for their loved ones and others who were in there. In the middle of the street, there was one lone police officer, no gun drawn, no barricades, but he just begged people not to get any closer lest they too would be in peril. It was when I was embracing this one woman and she was sobbing and I was praying with her that we heard the rumble. And then I looked and I could see the North Tower begin to disappear into its own debris. As it began to fall, everybody, every man and woman ran. And I was about as big as I am today, so running was not going to be very successful for a number of reasons. One was that billowing debris cloud that you saw came and overcame us. I remember bending over to protect myself, but also taking a handkerchief and covering my face. It was a very odd moment, one that was both frightening yet almost eerily comforting as that debris fell on our backs like a gentle rain. Imagine being out yesterday when it was raining and just just bend over and allow that gently to hit you. That's really what it felt like. It didn't hurt. 
But then when it finally stopped, I took the handkerchief away from my face and I looked around and everything that was in full color had now become gray. Storefronts, people, mailboxes, newsstands, everything was gray. I made my way down through the rest of Manhattan over to Westside Drive, going past the other buildings of the World Trade Center site that hadn't been hit but were now engulfed in flames. To see that inferno and then to arrive where rescue workers were de being deployed in. If you remember on the one slide where the firefighter is engulfed in that debris, as I stood on the corner of Vesey and Westside Drive, I saw a man coming toward me. Even at the age of 41, I looked and I saw a hero. At 41, police officers and firefighters and other first responders were and remain my heroes because they put themselves in harm's way for me. I stood there and he walked toward me completely covered in gray with debris in his helmet and once he got to me, he just fell into my arms sobbing. He said, Father, there's all dead people. My partner and I were in the tower and we knew it was going to collapse so we knew we had to run. So when we got to the outside, we stood right against the edge of the building and we grabbed hands and we said, when you see that no more people are jumping, people that would fall on them and kill them, when we see no more people jumping, yell go and we'll run. So Father, we grabbed hands and pretty soon one of us yelled go and we started to run. And we started to run faster and then all of a sudden, my partner was gone. He was hit by another person and died. I realized at that moment as I looked into this man's eyes that I was in a place that only belonged to God. To look into this man's eyes was truly a window to his soul. To see that experience through his eyes. And to realize how much he loved the people he went to save, how much he loved his partner. And now he was here. Soon rescue workers came and were washing his eyes out, but soon he started going back in. There was a, a barricade, there was a more like a curb that I stood on, and all of a sudden people asked to be blessed. First responders that were going in, we didn't know if we were going to live or die that day because there were still fighter jets in the air, and we didn't know if they were ours or someone else's. So as they came up, it was a tradition in New York, some, what you hear in Hebrews where it says, bring together the elders of the church, lay on hands and anoint them with oil. That was our tradition, to go to the hospital or to the nursing homes or even to a home and have oil. So when they came up, I would ask them their name, and this is a key part. They knew that they were loved by God because they would say, my Christian name, my baptized name is, and then they would give me their name and I would push my thumb into the oil and I would anoint their forehead in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then I'd put my hands on their shoulders or their head or their helmet or somewhere and pray, may God's holy angels watch over you as you serve Him today. They kept asking for blessings. The line continued. But an odd thing was also occurring. To my left, there was a, a group of people that had Sharpie markers, permanent markers, and the rescue workers would take off their coats, their turnout gear, whatever it was, and they would write their phone number, 
Or maybe their social security number on their arm hoping that if there was more collapses, if there was more things that happened that day, just maybe someone would let their loved ones know that they had been, say, that they were, had been found. We stayed there throughout the day until the end of maybe 9, 9.30 at night, and they told us to go home. They said there was nothing more to do because the, the tower number seven had collapsed and there were no survivors. They told us to go home because we needed to be in our churches, and our offices, wherever it was that we normally served so we could help our own the next day because other people were coming. As I made my way up to 14th Street to eventually find a train and then head home, I ended up on a train with one other person. At that time of night, being on a train with one other person is unthinkable because normally it's full. The city that never sleeps transports people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I got in and sat down, and there was one other man sitting over across the way, and he looked much like I did, covered in debris. He looked at me and he said, were you there, Father? I said, yes. And he said, where? And I said, Church and Chamber Street. How about you? He said, yes, I was. The 26th floor of the North Tower. We were going home. We were going home that night, but we knew many others who were not. There were 343 firefighters and so many civilians that didn't go home that night and never would. Soon after going back into normal routines and such, they asked us to return. I was asked to serve at a place called Respite South. It was a Marriott hotel that had been taken over by the Red Cross. It was there that construction workers could get an extra pair of long underwear, clean socks, could get food. There were so many things that they could receive in that spot, including mental health and spiritual care. I'll never forget this one man who was a very large man. He was about as tall as he was wide, a very big man wearing Carhartt uh, gear. He walked toward me and he started thumping me in the chest and asking me, where is God? I thought of all sorts of Bible passages and I thought of so much to share with him, but I kept on telling him that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst of us and his love has not gone out. We talked for quite a while and pretty soon he seemed to be, to be at least open to the love of God. And so we talked and I, we decided that I would go with him to go to where he worked. He worked on a piece of equipment called a grappler. It's kind of like a crane, but it has a three-prong hook on the end. And this man, this man was so adept that he could reach down and pick up just about anything in that claw and then take it over and put it into a truck. But you have to understand that that was what he normally would have done, but it was his job to pick that up, and he knew that it was not only debris, but there were people. Thinking about that day after day, shift after shift had worn on him. And he said, Father, I can't do it anymore. I got to his equipment and we, we prayed together. And it was odd. They gave us all sorts of odd supplies. You never knew which ones you would use and which one you wouldn't. But I pulled out a green 
three-by-five card, and I, I wrote a name on it, put it back in my pocket, and then just before I left, I said, would you pray for Justin? Justin is a young man in St. Charles, Missouri, who needs a liver transplant. He's not doing well, and he needs our prayers. So I gave this man this card and didn't think anything of it until a couple of nights later when I was back at the site, and here he comes. He's coming to me again, and he didn't look like he did the last time, but still he was coming determined. And he pulled out the card, and he said, in his best Brooklyn accent, very sneaky father, you got me to pray for this guy. I love Justin. I love Justin. I pray for him because when I'm praying for him, I can't think about what it is that I'm doing at this moment. By praying for another and sharing love as he also received love, things got better. It didn't change what he was doing, but it changed his perspective. Around Thanksgiving, they closed our site at the Marriott, and they asked us to move on to one or two other places, and so I was assigned to the on-site morgue. This is where the remains of human beings were brought for our preliminary identification and then taken over to Bellevue Hospital to be analyzed, the DNA to be analyzed, to possibly figure out who these people were. It was New Year's Day. There had already been the celebration the night before in Times Square. And then I was on the shift that worked that next day. And we were at the Marriott, which was actually considered Building, two, building 3. It happened that that's where a lot of firefighters had been killed because that's where they were being deployed into the two towers. It was there that day that they were unearthing the remains of many men, and they were from Ladder 118. Ladder 118 is just across the Brooklyn Bridge near the, Hudson, or the East River. So we invited their men to come over to help bring out the ones that they loved. It was a long day. There was lots of people that we were able to identify because their names were on their uniforms and on their backs. And we were able to know who these men were. As we got into the evening and it was time to finish loading the morgue cart, the morgue truck, it was our custom that nobody leaves ground zero alone, so even the remains went with an honor guard. I prayed a blessing over the bodies that God would help the eyes of the researchers to find out who these men were, prayed with the honor guard, and then closed the door, and was a, as our custom, you smack the back of the door so the driver knows to leave, and then I turned around. I saw the captain. He looked at me and he said, Chaplain, are you all right? I was honest, and I said, no. It was his men that we had brought out that day. It was his men that he loved that we uncovered and sent on their way. We ended up, just like that firefighter and I on September 11th, we embraced each other and we sobbed. And we sobbed and we held on to each other and eventually walked each other out of that site that night on the first day of 2002. This continued all the way till June 2nd day after day, trying to find more and more people, the ones who were loved, but also sharing love with those who were working. The one site that you saw where the cross was in front of a building was St. Peter's Church, where Father Judge was brought. 
It was also one of the sites where they fed us for nine months. It was all these places that had taken care of us. But eventually on June 2nd, after the memorial, when the last beam was taken out and the site was closed, it was on June 2nd that I was together with Carlos and Jack and other members of our team. We went down into the, to the base where it was all swept beautifully clean and it didn't look anything like September 11th and we prayed the Lord's Prayer and we went through what was our version of evening prayer. And I remember sharing with them one last time the words from Abide With Me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. When morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee, in life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. I never really saw them again except that we were all in the same treatment program for the, the World Trade Center uh, monitoring and treatment program. 75% of us have GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. From the debris and from the stress that we developed this disease, which many people have, but 75% people, 75 of all the people there have it. I also have what's called Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous condition that every year the World Trade Center, you pay for the treatment that I go and have an endoscopy to make sure there's no dysplasia, no morphine of those cells into cancer. Odd little things are part of it, including post-traumatic stress disorder, but they're caring for us. The church was there that day, not just in me, but really in your hands, because just as you have helped Austin Wellhausen and Michael Hansen to go through college in Ann Arbor and then in uh, Mequon and now at the seminary, you're preparing the hands that will continue to bless, the hands that will continue to be there, to be the voice in the midst of the most horrendous times of our personal and other lives to bring love. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us and gives us that freedom to now go and share that. I thank you because even if it wasn't specifically the people of Rochester, people sent me to Concordia Ann Arbor. They sent me to Concordia Seminary to be trained. And by the power that was given to me in my baptism, I was able to share that love with others. Joan of Arc is quoted to have said that when she was doing her work, they asked if she was afraid. She said, no, I was born for this moment. I am convinced that you and I were baptized for this very moment to share the love of God with others. I thank you. I thank you for your ministry here in the Rochester area. I thank you for how that has spread through the hands and voices of many. And pray that God will continue to bless you as his loved ones, as you share his love with others. In the name of Jesus, amen.